This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. We get asked a lot of good questions here on the show. They come up in the comment section. They are sent to our email inboxes. Some slide into our DMs. Some questions come with enough frequency that we select them for mass consideration, which is what's happening today. When do you plan on retiring? Best way to climb the structure of a large company? How can we hang out together? All this and more on today's episode, as Andrew and I answer your burning question, where nothing is off limits. Welcome to episode 120, Ask the Show 2023 Spring Edition. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Construction Specialties, maker of architectural building products designed to master the movement of buildings, people, and natural elements. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are answering maybe 10 or so of your questions in this Ask the Show episode, which I believe is round seven. Is it really round seven? Man, I didn't keep track. Yeah. I knew we're getting up there. We're not quite double digits yet, but we've been going at it a while. Well, I'm about to say, I didn't really count either, but (laughs) no, no, I did. (laughs) I went back and we've done two for each of the last two years. Okay. But I don't think we did them before then. So that's why I was like, well, I'm not going to go back and look for Mm-mm. So I just went back enough to where I thought I was right. And then when I proved to myself that I was right, <laughs> I stopped looking. <laughs> so there could be more. Actually. There could be. I don't. I but got I, you. Uh-huh. But I'm pretty sure I'm right about this one. I feel uh-huh. pretty good about it. Uh-huh. So you might notice that I don't sound as velvety as I normally do. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. You're a little, little scratchy. You're a little scratchy today. I know. I almost, I almost died last week. That's not really true. I shouldn't make light of that, actually. But I got sick. I don't know what I got sick with. I went and got like every test. First off, I don't like going to the doctor. Mm-hmm. That was like a button. I don't know if I should tell the story. It's a funny story. At least I think it's funny. So I'm going to tell the story. <laughs> so my dad was 100% Norwegian, blue blood, and he was raised Lutheran. So he was one of these guys that had a heads down do your job, you're not better than anyone else, attitudes about life. Mm. And he kind of installed some of these buttons in his children. And one of the buttons he installed is he didn't like taking medicine. Not for anything that made sense. He was a big believer in this. Like he thought, if I take aspirin because I have a headache, then one day when something bad happens and I need to take aspirin, it's not going to work because I will have acclimated my body to aspirin taking. I got it. So he would never take any of these pills. And that went to, I don't need to go to the doctor for a cold. When I have something's really wrong, that's when I'll go to the doctor. Yeah. So that's how he felt his whole life. And in fact, when I was, I don't know, I don't think I was 10 years old. My dad was clipping the bushes with one of those hedge clippers kind of things. Oh, uh uh-huh. And he chopped the end of one of his fingers off. And we had to go to the hospital, and I had to go into the bushes and dig the finger out, by the way. Oh, all right. And they sewed it back on. And they're like, okay, we gave you some pain meds. And he's like, I'm not taking those. And the doctor's like, well, it's going to hurt. And he's like, no, because like one day I might actually need pain meds. And I'm like, today's that day. You've been saving up for this day. (laughs) This is the day. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You chopped your finger off. You need them now. This is the day. So I don't like taking medicine and I don't like going to the doctor unless I think I need to go to the doctor, which is going to be the end of me, I'm sure. So I get sick and I'm just staying at home and I have like a really high temperature, like 105. Mm. And then I'll I'll go, well, maybe this is, I need to take some aspirin. I'll drop this because my brain tells me we're dying. You need to take this or your brain's not going to work. And it would drop down and then it go back up and it dropped down. So finally I go into the doctor. And I learned two things. I might have a bad thermometer, number one, (laughs) because you you probably didn't have 105. No. Or you would have, the hospital would have come for you if that was the case. That's really bad. Yeah. 
And then they took like every battery of test to find out if I had COVID and all these other kind of monkey pox and everything. I had nothing. They're like, you're just sick. And I go, do people come and pay you for this? Yeah. Thanks for telling me something I already knew. Awesome. <laughs> I go, is there like some medicine I should be taking? He goes, well, I don't know. I mean, you can keep taking Tylenol if you want. I was like, oh my God, why am I doing this? So tomorrow will be day eight of me mm. not quite being 100%. I feel okay, but my throat's a little wackadoo. Yeah, well. Yeah. That's it. That's all I got, man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, just because I had COVID, so I get it. Yeah. I've been sick recently and it wasn't great. It wasn't fun. And you just got back from design conference yourself. Yes, I did. Long but fun weekend. Well, so you did have fun at least? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was good fun. Good fun. Saw some good architecture, listened to some good people speak about architecture. How long was this trip? I mean, I left on Thursday, but it started Friday. All day Friday, all day Saturday, and a little bit today. All right. Well, there you go. I've actually never been to it. Yeah. I've thought about it a bunch of times, but didn't do it. Mm. I will say this, and this is because if anyone who listens, like when we do our annual gift guides, the most expensive thing Andrew ever put on his gift guide, I bought this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. I got rid of my Jeep, my big monster Jeep, and I traded it up for an even bigger monster Ford Bronco. (laughs) Is it really that much bigger? Oh, it's so much bigger. It doesn't seem that. It seems smaller to me than what I ever thought. Mm -hmm. When I see them, they look so small. I mean, it's still smaller than my car, so I thought they would be bigger. You might be looking at the baby version, because like I roll down the road, I'm looking eye to eye to semis. I mean, it's... (laughs) That's not really true either, but yeah, yeah, I'm aware it's big. I mean, I'm stunned at how big it is. Mm. Like it doesn't, it doesn't look super huge. Yeah. But like, I have a hard time getting into the back seat. I'm like, I might have to get like a little booster step to get (laughs) into the back. It's, it's huge. Funny. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of a, just kind of catching up with stuff. So we have a bunch of questions that came in and there's some really good ones. I thought, I think we should just get into it and go right out of the gate with maybe the hardest question we got. You ready? I don't know if I'm ready, but let's do it. Okay. Andrew has heard these questions. He just doesn't know the order that we're going to talk about them. (laughs) I heard them while I was driving back today, an hour and a half ago. So, Well, that's where some of these just got turned in. I just asked for these questions today. I know. I know. know. All right. So here we go. The first one comes from, and I can't, you know what, Steven, it's from you. I'm not going to get your name right. I think I've heard it once, but I think it's Stephen Batchik. I think is how you say it. So Stephen Batchik, architect. You know what? If I get it wrong, deepest apologies. But his question to us today is, what are the top three deficiencies of the architectural profession? Now, I'm going to assume he's asking us for what we think the top three deficiency are, as opposed to what the, like, confirmed Top three <laughs> deficiencies. This is not a research-based response. That's right. Okay. This is, uh, I lick my finger and I stick it in the air and then I think about it and I go, this is what I think the answers are. My opinion. Yeah. And you know, this question is interesting in a couple ways because when I first read it, I didn't internalize it correctly. And I started thinking about it being school-related. And I'm not so sure that's necessarily what he's I mean, it could be part of it, but when it says the, of the profession, what are the deficiencies of the profession? You could say that we focus on design too much. That's one of the things that I think is a deficiency because we take up so much bandwidth talking about design. And this is part of the education process. This is where my brain started. That a lot of folks don't come out of school. No, and I know Stephen talks about building better buildings, like the technology of building and understanding heat transfer, moisture movement, and like, how can we build our buildings to last longer by detailing them better? And I think part of it has to do with how we spend our time teaching people the actual profession of architecture. Because I spent very little time. If I think about the 207 credit hours that I came out of college with, maybe six of them had to do with the sort of stuff that keeps water out of a building. Mm-hmm. You know, it just was, it wasn't the focus. Yeah, I think, and I don't know how you're phrasing that as the deficiency, whether it's too much design or not enough construction knowledge. I mean, I was going to go with not enough construction knowledge was one of my deficiencies, but I guess they're somewhat related in the idea of how things get built and 
what the sequencing of building things are and how materials actually behave. It's funny, coming back from the design conference this weekend, there were conversations we had a lot about materials. It's interesting to see that good architects and people that are even highly design-oriented still really think about materials and really think about how things go together. Now, maybe not in that science-y sort of making sure heat transfers work, but definitely about the way things get constructed and how they're going to go together and what the order is and who's going to make them. And so I think the construction knowledge for me is a big one. I was thinking about I was driving our curriculum. I think there's one, maybe two, three-hour courses. Yeah. You only have to take one. You don't have to take both. It's an option that really deal with the science and the, the reasoning behind materials and how things get put together, you know, how an envelope goes together. This is definitely a loaded question, which is why I put it first. So if we run long on this, we can answer other questions like super fast. <laughs> so yes, I do think the, the construction knowledge is something that's a deficiency. I also think that since part of our process of becoming licensed architects involves real world application, like we have to have real time spent in an office doing certain types of tasks that demonstrate a breadth of knowledge that spans from beginning to end. Part of me wonders if there shouldn't be some sort of, I don't know, this goes back to the school thing. I always think that architecture work construction, just to understand how that process works differently mm -hmm. from the imagined, especially now. We used to have conversations when I got out of school, and this was in the early 90s, about to what degree could you dimension something? Because your pencil lead's only so thin. Mm -hmm. You can only get so exact with something or draw something so big to get the scale so tight. Now, we don't really have that problem. We can actually turn over digital drawings to somebody to use as part of our construction documentation. So you can get as 256th as you want on some of these things. <laughs> exactly. And part of the consideration of that is I remember the first time I worked on a project. I, technically, I didn't work on it. Not, not this aspect of it. It was a building that was so big. Our tolerances during the CD phase, even though we changed it when we printed, we drew to 256th of an inch because we were worried about rounding errors mm. over a building that was 5,000 feet long actually being three feet longer because of all the rounding errors that were taking place. Mm. You know, the rounding up, if we say, if we dimension something, get it close, and then we say, well, they can't build a 256, so we're just going to hold it to a quarter inch. And all the rounding that might be taking place and your building starts to grow in weird ways that you don't control. That was one of the concerns that we had. So I have to say, it has to do something with construction. Not I need someone to learn how to swing a hammer or that sort of thing, but just to understand the real-world applications of what architects ask contractors to do so that they can form a more collaborative. This is a reasonable expectation from me to you. If you're the contractor and I'm asking you to do something, I know enough about what you do that it's reasonable for me to ask it from you. Mm -hmm, I got you. And I think that that would actually build some respect between the two sides of the table sometimes, which can be challenging. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things you said that I want to jump back a little bit to ask you, is you were saying that on the design conference you just got back from, a lot of people were talking about materiality and how things come together. And I'm curious, because my brain went to capital A architects. Mm -hmm. That's something that we talk a little bit about at my office at Boca Powell. And it had to do with the value of someone and the breadth and depth of knowledge that they have in all things versus should they become generalists and all these things just to kind of know what they are and that they exist, but then they can get really good at something and they become specialists at it. And I'm curious when you have people talking about material selection, how it works and how buildings come together, knowing what I know about the design conference and being who it is and the people that I know that generally go to it, not a lot of big firm people on that trip. No, 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 no. And I'm wondering how much of that small firm, they're all capital A architects. Like they kind of have to do it all. They kind of have to know it all. Mm -hmm. They don't get built the same way that big firm architects get built. Yeah, true, true. And I'm wondering how much that influences that conversation. Yeah, it could be. I hadn't thought about it that way. And I, when you said big A, I wasn't sure where you were going. But a lot of it has to do with scale of projects. Most of the projects are the people. It's smaller scale things. At least some of the stuff that we look at and we go tour, but not all of it. The architects they bring in, they're not all doing small work either. Some of them do really, really large work. It's more like they start out with things that are smaller, and that's where they build that knowledge of materials and mm -hmm. materiality. And then as they grow, they can take that with them. They don't start out with something gigantic because it's too hard. It seems like most of them start with these smaller things, and over their career, they get better at it, get better at it, and get noticed for being better at it, so they get these bigger projects. 
but they somehow manage to stick with some of those things they learn when they're doing these like tiny, tiny projects in the beginning of their career that are so well-crafted and put together and take care of all those things. Some of them, maybe there's something to that about about big versus small. Yeah, I, I have moved from one side of the fence to the other, and I don't view them either as a good or a bad thing. They're just, I view them di- as they're just different. They are just different, yeah, for sure. Yeah, my opinion on that has tempered substantially as, you know, I come walking in the office thinking I know all kinds of stuff, and, you know, I, I do know a lot of stuff. And then I can sit down next to somebody who's three years out of school, who's been doing 100% of something that I've been doing for 2%, and they just lap me like crazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I kind of go, it's crazy. I mean, it's just different skills. Did we give Steve three I deficiencies? I don't know. The only other one I would come up with, I think that as a profession, we have deficiencies in is business. I think that goes back to the education thing. That's another one of those things that you might get three hours of education in your entire school degree. Yeah. And then when you get out into the profession, you probably don't get much of that either in your first 10 years. It doesn't get talked about. It doesn't happen. So business operations and how businesses work and all of the ins and outs about business practices and not even specific to architecture, but just how businesses work. Yeah. So I think having some of that knowledge would sometimes, I think, help temper some people or help them understand how things are going. And especially early in your career, when you might get mad about stuff. <laughs> it's because you don't kind of know how it works. I'm not trying to say you shouldn't get mad about things or if you knew how it worked, it would change, but it would change some. You still might disagree with what's going on, but you could also see a different side of it. And I think that's the problem of it. It's like when we're in school, we don't get taught that other side of it to even consider these things that everybody up the food chain or the owners or the principals or all of these other things that they're having to consider besides just making buildings, just doing the architecture. Sure. There's so much more than that. And I think that that sometimes gets lost a little bit. It doesn't show up in the education at all. But I chalked that into the knowing what you know or knowing what you don't know because yeah. we have a CFO in our office and guess what? He's not an architect. Yeah. Right? So I don't need an architect to be able to financially run this company. I need someone who knows how to run a company to come in and do that. Yeah. All I need to know is go get that person. But that's a bigger company thing. Yes. I mean, not everybody gets to have that, so. No, there's definitely, we've covered that a handful of times, that there's just, generally speaking, not a lot of like business 101 stuff that happens. The idea is just like if you go into a small firm, the elder states person, as they tell you how vapor barriers work, is also going to tell you how ledger sheets work and cash flow works. And yeah. you're just going to pick it up. You're just going to learn it. Yeah, if you're lucky enough. If you're lucky enough. All right, Stephen, thanks for your question. All right, the next question comes from John Bird, AIA. That's actually in his title. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have stuff like that in my title, too. I mean, it's in his Instagram. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So his is not quite as hard to kind of pinpoint. It's more of a, hmm, that's really good to know. But that's a good question. And I actually had dinner with John this weekend. Oh, did you? At the design conference. Oh, I don't think John and I have ever met. Uh-huh, yeah. And you're over there having like drinks with the guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe this question is directed to you. So. <laughs> yeah. so John's question is, what is your best non-architecture source for creative inspiration? And since you do her best friends, I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it changes over time. You know, I would say right now that if you've paid attention, I've been doing a lot of AI stuff, messing yeah. around with that. And so, although I'm not sure I would call that non-architectural because the stuff I'm doing is architectural. Even though it's, I'm using mid-journey for stuff, I'm creating architectural things. So for me, I would say it's generally it's films, movies, those kinds of things. Mm. I draw a lot of architectural inspiration from movies. Of all kinds, doesn't really matter what it is. I'm always paying attention to sort of what's happening in the backgrounds you know, and the architecture of, of films and, yeah. and the way they're put together even on a different level of the way that they're constructed and put together, but then also the scenery that's happening in the film. So I do that. And then maybe sometimes music, but it's harder. It's not quite as a visual medium. Well, you know, it's funny. Music is a creative fuel for me. But mm-hmm. I don't look at music as a source of inspiration for what I do at all. Yeah. Fuel is a good word. Sometimes music is the gas that gets me going, for sure. Yeah. I mean, just get your head in the right place sometimes. Yeah. And actually what happens, my resource is I'll find something. Like, I love nothing better than to find music that, like, almost nobody's heard of and then turn somebody onto it. I love that. That's mm-hmm. my greatest joy in the world. So I just send them to my daughter. She doesn't even acknowledge that I've sent them. <laughs> Okay, my best non-architecture source of creative inspiration 
is super crazy high cuisine. The highest execution level of mm. food possible. Sure, yeah. Not people like making really good fried chicken burritos. Like, I mean, that stuff tastes good, but that's not the sort of thing. I need a level of craft and care and execution that inspires me. Like Michelin star type stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is I want to say it was, it might've been like episode five. I wish I could look it up faster, but my keyboard's super loud. We did a show on architects and chefs. Mm-hmm. And you know, my backup plan, if this architecture thing didn't work out was I was going to be a chef because there's a lot of similarities, I believe, between our two professions and the type of person it would take to be an architect is also the same type of person that it would take to be a chef at that highest level. It sounds a little like I'm saying architects, like all of us, regardless of whatever level we're at, are at the same level, the highest level of chef. That's not what I'm saying. But the creativity, the execution, the technical knowledge that's required to do the things that they do, Mm -hmm. the perfection that they strive for, the hours they put in just to try to get better at doing something over and over and over again. Yeah. It's something that not only do I find inspiring, I find it incredibly motivating and something that really gets me going. I love it. So. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I agree. I like food a lot of that way and think about it in a similar fashion. You really have to know how ingredients behave in order to be really good at that. Mm-hmm. You really have to know the materials that you're using and understand how they behave and what they do. So I get it. And it's constantly changing too. I mean, yeah. people's palates change and like the styles around the country are different, across the world are different. You can mm-hmm. find inspiration for what they're doing in China. Yeah. The similarities are like thousands and thousands of corollaries between the two. So that's the answer for me. People yelling at you, hurry up, get it. Table eight needs their dish. Why am I paying so much for these duck livers? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Okay. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. I'm sitting down with Eric Spazito, Director of Architectural Louvers, Screens, Facade Solutions, and Safety Venting Business Units. Eric joined Construction Specialties in 2007 and currently serves as the Business Unit Director for Construction Specialties Exterior Facade Related Products. These include architectural louvers, screens, facade solutions, and safety venting, and Eric's teams focus on solving complex challenges within the exterior architectural facade market using innovative engineered solutions. That is an impressive intro. Hi, Eric. Happy to have you on the show today. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Well, look, I know that we have a limited amount of time together today, so I have a couple questions I want to go through so that you could help us understand mastering movement when it comes to your area expertise. So, Construction Specialties is highly centered on an educational concept called Mastering Movement, and I know based on the intro that I just read about you that you are extremely passionate about custom louver and facade solutions. How can these items provide value to both the contractors and the client? Sure. From a Mastering Movement standpoint, a louver is the perfect movement tool. By definition, a louver is what you think of a large vent on the outside of a building connected to HVAC equipment or mechanical equipment for intake and exhaust applications. So it is always moving air. Now, these aren't just the straight blades, flat blades of the 1980s or 90s. They've evolved over the last decade or two into complex shapes. They are chevron blades with hooks and gutters and very tight spacing. The the spacing of louver blades can be one inch on center. It's a very dense system of extruded aluminum. Mm -hmm. But they are designed to stop wind-driven rain. And they have a very tough task of allowing air in and out of the building while stopping an immense amount of rain. So that's quite a combination. Yeah, highly engineered, I'm sure. Back to education and mastering movement of how louvers contribute to building performance. First of all, architects don't always like the aesthetic of a louver, the visual lines of a louver on a building, but they're necessary. Louvers are a necessary product on the facade of a building. Sure, I get that. So what do we do? How do we make them disappear? Mm -hmm. There are options. You can make a louver disappear from a facade while it still functions. Perforated aluminum sheet is a great solution. When you're at ground level and standing a distance back from perforated sheet, it appears to be a flat panel. You can't really see through it or see that it's perforated even. So you can put that on the outside of a louver to help hide it. Sure. 
keeping it all within an assembled frame, but also tested. It's key to have it tested as a combination system in a single frame. So that is a great solution to help hide a louver and still function on the building. Yeah, I'm sure architects love that as a solution because you're right. You know, a lot of times the louver, they can get kind of big and they kind of take on a prominent role. And sometimes it's not really the look we're going for. Yeah, there's two different directions you can go. You can accent the louver, make it prominent, make it an architectural feature, or you could try to make it disappear. And both of those are available. You want it to be a feature piece, an accent on a building. Longer, bold blades can be added to it. Color can be introduced. Even LED lights underneath the louver blade to illuminate the system at nighttime. Signage often gets attached to louvers. So they can be a prominent architectural feature or they can be hidden by perforated sheet. That perforated sheet can come in different hole sizes, patterns, but that'll help hide the louver. So it can really go in two different directions. Yeah, I like the kind of flexibility that you're able to get. We talk in our office quite often. If we're trying to make something go away, we can't do it. We don't try to get it close. We're like, okay, well, now we need to articulate this thing and needs to have a prominent role because it was intentionally put here. Right. And the important thing there is as you customize these louvers, as you either make them disappear or become a huge feature, uh, they need to be a tested system. It needs to be tested in that unique application. If you put a grill on the front of it to hide it, it needs to be tested because you never know how that air and water performance could adversely impact the building and the mechanical equipment. And that back to the intake and exhaust, the, the primary function of the louver, it still needs to function at the end of the day. Sure. Eric, as we're coming to a close, can you tell me what you believe helps to master the movement within a building? What's the takeaway you want everyone to have today? Yeah, for me, it's the collaboration and the partnership between all stakeholders on a project. It's the mechanical engineer, the architect, but then it goes to the contractor and the subcontractor, the installer. They all have to be on the same page back to louvers and the movement of air. They need to be collaborating in both the attachments, the installation, but the design, the testing, and the unique customization that can happen with the louver that's great, that can either hide it or accent it, but it all needs to work in unison. It all needs to be a tested system. Visit MasteringMovement.net for more information and to learn more about how Construction Specialties has been creating inspired solutions for a more intelligently built environment since 1948. Hey, Eric, I want to thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the insight that you've shared with us on the Mastering Movement conversation that we're running with Construction Specialties. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, take care. All right, so we're on to question number three, and I got a little little surprise on this one. Okay. All right, so this question is, how does an architect deal with burnout? And it comes from Renee Brida. The reason why there's a twist is Renee Brida is my oldest sister. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, right? Nobody didn't see that coming. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm kind of like, maybe I need to call my sister. Yeah. (laughs) Is she worried about me? (laughs) I was wondering, yeah, is she she worried that you're burning out there, man, or what? I don't know. Well, you know, we did a whole episode on burnout, and we talked about what is burnout? What's the signs of it? I'm like, what are the resources that you can turn to that might help you learn how to recognize that you actually have burnout versus you're just tired or you have some kind of other issues that might be manifesting themselves and that you're assigning to it being like your workload, that sort of thing. Yeah. That was episode 97. 97. Seems like it wasn't that long ago, but that's quite a few episodes back now at this point. I mean, that's 20, that's almost a year ago. I know. I know. That question, when it comes up specifically, my brain always goes to the same place to try to answer it. And it is, how do I separate myself from the things that create that sense of burnout? Which really just means like vacation. Like, how do I separate myself? Mm -hmm. We're not talking about chronic burnout or systemic burnout, or I've been doing this for so long that I'm in a constant state. It's really like, I need to figure out how to turn my brain off in such a way that I don't realize that I'm burnt out. It's really that straightforward. Mm. And the way that I deal with it normally is, is I take a trip someplace that is so completely outside of my norm that I don't think about work. Mm. Interesting. And I'll tell you that being in a big firm has made that a lot easier for me to actually do. That's become an option for me. 
not taking the trip, but not having to think about work. Because when I worked in a small firm, no one was doing my job for me when I was gone. Yeah. So the amount of work you'd have to do to prepare everybody, all your clients, your everybody, that you're not going to be there to answer questions. Because it doesn't work if you're still checking emails and responding to questions during that time. And it's really hard if you've got a construction project going and you're like, contractor could have a question over the next two weeks when I'm in China doing a dumpling tour. Yeah. That's a real yeah. thing. <laughs> it's easier to, to have people support you in those moments when you have a much larger staff full of talented people that can actually step in and do that for you. So I'm sympathetic to people that were like me just five years ago that didn't have those sort of resources. That can actually be a resource for me now and allows that to be a way that I can deal with burnout. Yeah. And I think for me, I'm that person that you just talked about right, for five years ago. Yep. It was always just making sure that I spent certain times of the day where I was just off. So I try to cope with it in small ways every day instead of some giant break. I'm not looking at email. I'm not checking my phone. I'm not doing this stuff after whatever, seven o'clock. That's it. I'm done. I just don't do it. And I'll either do something with my kids or watch a movie or read a book or go have dinner or whatever it is. Essentially making sure that I unplugged for a substantial amount of time every day. Yeah. Part of what we talked about before with the burnout was that now, you know, you constantly have to be on. You're unplugging yourself for a long period of time or an extended period of time and then going back to it. And I'm just trying to, my goal is always just to try to do a little bit every day. Yeah. Where I'm completely, I'm just, I'm out and try to regenerate, <laughs> put a little bit of that burnout fire out every day as opposed to one big giant bucket that comes at some point. So you don't have like an inferno going. You just have like a, a low ember that's always a little bit there, but yeah, yeah. I'm trying to keep it out from turning it into a giant grass fire. And so that was always how I try to deal with it. Well, let me ask you this because one of the things that I found difficult, like I would love to be able to do that, but my personality. Mm hmm. I mean, you know this. You give me a lot of grief about it, actually. Yeah. I work a lot. I'm always doing something. And you give me grief for not working. <laughs> I know. I was like, how does he sleep for 12 hours a day? I don't <laughs> understand this. But the challenge that I still have, and it really started when I started the website, The Life of mm -hmm. an Architect. And that put so much stress on me that I did not really understand in the way that it manifested over time. Like, I was even looking at my Instagram feed the other day. I kind of don't post a lot to it anymore, mm -hmm. which is funny because I'm still on there a lot looking at it. I have like this, like at a certain point, it's hard for me to unplug or not answer questions or I go, oh, I got these emails and I've got this thing. And I kind of go, the way that my personality is, is when I stop, it'll be, it won't be like a faucet turning to a drip. It's going to be, I took the faucet out. That's what I it's going to end up being. Yeah. So that manifests itself now since I'm not there to... I'm going to go to China for a week. Yeah. See you later. I'm not going to, I try not to do anything sure. during that time. Sure. Yeah. And I think they're similar. It's similar aspects of it's all or nothing. Yeah. But we're just doing them at different scales. I think it's really what it amounts to. Yeah. Okay. So I put this next question where I did because I kind of thought that that conversation we just had about burnout was going to lead us right into this. And it comes from Run Gill Run. And their question is, when do you plan to retire or go work optional? <laughs> and you know what? I've been asked this question up a lot. Really? I never know how to take it. I go, do people think like, do I look like I'm about to retire? <laughs> so I know. I was wondering, like, is, are people telling me I'm, I need to start thinking about that? Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah. I'm like, am I slipping? Uh, all right. Even though I don't think that's what they're trying to do here. But, you know, I'm getting, I'm 54 years old now. And I don't think about retiring in any kind of real way. Like some people, organized people, have a plan. Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't have a plan. Mm. Like right now, I stick so much money into my retirement account because I have this huge fear that I'm going to have to work till I die mm -hmm. because otherwise I'm going to be living in a refrigerator box under some overpass. Mm -hmm. I have, this is a real fear of mine. It's not real, but it feels real. Mm -hmm. But I also know that I don't want to have any responsibility for the rest of my life. Like at some point I want to be able to go, what do you want to do? I'm going to eat pancakes and I'm going to go eat pancakes. That's like, that's what my big decision for the day is going to be. I kind of want that. Mm -hmm. But I also know I'm pretty incapable of sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. And I won't be able to do that. I know. 
which means I got to have the money to go on adventures. I mean, it's a catch 22 people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't think about it at all. <laughs> Cause you're I'm, so young and virile. No, no. I, I just, because in my mind, when I owned the practice and I was running the practice, I was like, well, I'm just going to have to do this till I die. Cause I don't have anything else to do. I mean, that's what I'm doing. And now it really hasn't changed much. I don't know that I think about, I mean, I do have my, of course, my imaginary plan, but that's more of a, if I just get fed up with it all, this is what I'm going to do. It's not like a real plan of retirement. It's like, yeah, when I'm just tired of dealing with it, this is my go to the beach thing. But I'm not that organized person that plans for it. I'm probably going to end up in a refrigerator box down by the river because I don't plan for it at all. And I haven't, I don't, it's just not on my radar. Andrew, look, let me just tell you right now, you won't end up in a refrigerator box under the overpass. It'll be in a refrigerator box in my backyard. Oh, right. that's fair. <laughs> okay. I mean, at least I can keep the the wild animals from attacking your- You save you from the rabbit dogs and stuff? Okay, yeah, I can do fair. that for you. But yeah, I just, I don't know. Well, let me ask you this. So when I try to put a time to it, it's not my time. It's my daughter. Mm -hmm. I got one kid. And whenever I think about what my next move is going to be, it almost always is tied to, well, what's her next move going to be? Mm -hmm. She's going to school at UConn. Like yeah. She's pretty far away from us right she's now. over on the East Coast, and she might never come back. Well, I've told her, I go, look, if you think staying there is going to mean that we're not going to be like, ooh, it's inconvenient, we're going to move there. It's going to happen. Yeah. Now, I'm all for uh, giving her space. Like, I would never go, where are you going to live? Because I'm going to move in like a mile away so I can see you all the time. <laughs> Next door. No, because you know what? I don't really want that either. No. I mean, not because I don't want to hang out with my daughter, but I want my daughter to be her own person and not be always my daughter. Yeah. I need her to spread her wings as much as possible and, and not have to deal with me uh, mm. in that regard. So I kind of think that somewhere in my mid-60s will probably be the time when I, all right, I can be a more of a man of leisure than I have been. Interesting. That seems early to me. And maybe it's just because... Maybe that's work optional, though. Well, yeah. I just feel like I... No, it's not. It's when I stop, I'm going to stop. That's just what it's going to be. Yeah. I'm that guy, right? I just got yeah. to telling everybody that I'm that guy. Yeah. You'll never do half days. You'll never, like, slowly taper off. That's just not you. That might be me, for sure. But <laughs> not you. Yeah. And maybe it's because of now, like, this whatever shift transition I'm going through in my life at this point makes me feel like, well, I've got to do this for longer. If I'm going to continue teaching, then if I commit to that, well, I'm going to commit to it. And so I'm going to give it a good portion of time as well. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking like, oh, it's like 70, 75, something like that, maybe before I start to do that. Here's why, like that actually sounds more reasonable to me. Like if I'm given a real number, that's the number that I want to say. But yeah. then my brain goes, what if you're waiting for that moment to come and then your life ends? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't want to live my whole life waiting to live my life. <laughs> possibly. Possibly. And then all of a sudden I'm clutching my chest and I'm like, wait a minute. I never did fill in the blank. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that was depressing. Yeah. Let's move on to something a little bit better. Thanks ask. for that. That's a downer question. Wasn't a downer question. I think we just gave downer answers. I don't know. Maybe. That's a sunsetting kind of question. I don't know. I don't know. Let's. Okay, well, let's get a question that Andrew can really, well, he can lean into this probably as much as anybody, but we got one that's really he can lean into. This one comes from, are you sure? R-Y-U, sure, right? And their question is, how to get into an architectural master's program without an arts degree background? And I took up some liberties with how they phrased it, because I, th I think they kind of made it sound like an arts bachelor degree. And I go, well, that's not a problem question I think they're trying to get to, and, and I'm sorry, are you sure if, we, if I'm about to ruin what you really wanted to know? <laughs> and it was, how do I get into an architectural program when I don't have a body of work that shows that I'm prepared and ready to be in an architectural master's program because I have a business undergraduate degree and I want, I want to get an architecture school degree. I don't have mm -hmm. painting examples that I've done and drawings that I've done, and I don't have them developed those skills yet, and I don't have this kind of three-dimensional thinking capacity as highly honed as the people that I might be competing against for the same desks in these master's programs. That's how I took that question to be. Sure. I mean, it seems reasonable. Mm, it does seem reasonable. I'm a reasonable guy. So, right up to the point you're not. <laughs> Until I'm not, yeah. So, Andrew, let's go. I can tell you that you don't have to have, at least 
I mean, I know of several programs that you can go to, and we have one where I teach that are called career change programs, and that's all they are. You have an undergraduate degree in business. You have an undergraduate degree in basket weaving, whatever it is, accounting, law, political science. I don't know how many I'm trying to think of some of the ones that I've had, but it's a career change master's degree program, and usually it's an extra year. Does that mean four? No, that would mean three. 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 No, because our master's program is a two-year program. My five-year, I can get a master's in one. With my four years, you get a two. Well, yeah. If you have an unrelated undergrad, it's three. Essentially. And so, I mean, I can tell you that I just got through reviewing, I don't remember how many ever applications for our career change program and evaluating them. And some of those people had like portfolios of artwork and things like that they have done. Sometimes people have projects that they've built if they're crafty or they're into, I don't know, woodworking or they've built some stuff around the house, that kind of stuff. Then sometimes it's just you don't have anything. You write that statement of intent to talk about why you're interested in doing it and what passion you have for it. And it, Okay, wait, wait, you know, hold on. Now, you just said something that makes me go, well, wait a minute. When you're asking somebody in their application to say, okay, tell us why you have this passion to do this. Mm-hmm. But their passion has not manifested itself into anything that they can demonstrate yet. Yeah. Doesn't that seem like a bit of a flag? Like, shouldn't there be something? <laughs> Even if you're terrible at it. Yeah. Like, you're like, I'm terrible at drawing, but I really want to be able to do this. So I'm, I'm giving it the old college try here. You have to think of it this way, though. These career change students are essentially the same as a freshman student entering an architecture program. Sure. So you might not have had any of those skills entering as a freshman either. No, but they're more mature because they're older. Well, yeah, but again, just because they don't have those skills that have manifested from this newfound passion of, because some of them are like, well, I got a degree in this and I started working for a real estate office or I started working somewhere else and I, somewhere where I interacted with an architect and I like, wow, this light bulb went off my head. So that's something I'd really like to do. I just couldn't ever put my finger on it. And so that's no different, I think, than an 18-year-old person that's going into college and doesn't really, I mean, they like architecture, but they don't, don't have any work for it. Okay, I get your point. I get your point. Part of me wants to say, but they're not 18. So if somebody goes, hey, this True. is a life change that I want to make. This is a career change that I want to make. That I'm going to do something to kind of stick my toe in the water before I commit to a college degree program change to get a master's in this. Like, I took a pottery class at the Learning Annex, or I took a watercolor I mean, something. And that's fine. Again, the majority of the applicants have something like that, but there are some that yeah. do not. But the majority of them do. You have some kind of rudimentary portfolio, but it's not a requirement, so. Oh, I'll say this, because I sound like I'm a jerk. <laughs> I'm not asking for any of that work to be good. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. What I'm talking about is if false sudden I say, you know, I'm really interested in gardening. My first step isn't to go get a degree in horticulture. Yeah. It's to go try planting a garden. Sure. It's to plant that seed, literally and figuratively, mm. to see if this is going to grow into something that my imagined passion can manifest itself into. Mm -hmm. So you might be terrible at it because guess what? You don't actually know how to grow anything because you aren't a horticulturist yet. I get that. Yeah. It's the thing that the passion manifests itself in some capacity. I rebuilt this car and I retooled this Chevy Block V8 logo. To, I mean, something. No, I mean, I agree. But you know, it's also a lot of these, these applicants. I mean, they're not, they're not old. They haven't been out working. Most of the students in our career change program are either directly from their undergraduate degree. So they're like 22. Yeah. Or they've worked for maybe two or three years. I mean, almost everyone in that program is yeah. under 30. They haven't had much time to do, every once in a while there's other people, but the majority of them are still young and trying to figure themselves out, figure out what's going on. And so it's not much different than taking an undergraduate stab at things. But the question is, how do I get into an architectural master's without this background? And, and I'm saying you need to manifest your interest in something that you can demonstrate. That's it. That's what I would be looking for. Yep. And you're saying, well, you don't have to prove that you have that interest, just saying you have the interest. And saying it eloquently in your application. In a proper way. When we get statements of interest and they say, I traveled and then I was in Europe and I went, I don't know, Notre Dame or I went to Ranchamp or I went to whatever. And I went to all these places and I was moved and it made me feel and I want to make people do the same thing. That's why I want to do it. As opposed to just being like, well, I like drawing. That seems like fun. Yeah. Well, what you just said is what I would be looking for. 
that's the manifestation of the interest. I went someplace, I saw something, I took yeah. photos of it. It moved me, it inspired me. I want to do that to others. That's what we're looking for. Yeah, yeah. It, that's not necessarily that I'm having to draw things or try to. That's right. It does help for sure. And I think the the bigger thing is people feel like, well, it's not good enough. I'm not an expert at this. And that's not really what we're looking for either. Just some attempts to work things out. And sometimes it might be really off base, but like you said, maybe it's rebuilding an engine or maybe I build models in my spare time or I knit or I do whatever. I mean, something Yeah, yeah. that shows I've got some interest in something that's a little bit more technical, but creative and I can do these things. And it helps us understand that your mind is capable of taking all these parts and putting them together. And there's something there that we can start to formulate and deal with and help you expand. So I think it's totally possible. Okay. We're going to say we answered that question. Sounds good. Okay, the next one, we're not going to spend much time talking about it. I thought we could, but I don't, I don't want to spend the time on it. <laughs> okay. But I want to answer it. But I want to answer it. Okay. And this came from Saya underscore Arch. Mm. And we met her in Chicago, Chicago on our boat cruise. Yeah. And her question was a very poignant and specific. Do you plan on attending the AIA National Conference in San Francisco? And are there going to be any events or tours planned? I mean, clearly had a good time on the cruise thing that we did. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, yes, we're going to be there. And I'm excited about being there. Andrew and I are going to be out there doing all kinds of wacky stuff for sure. I've already got our hotel rooms booked. We already got our hotel? Yeah, we're set. We're good. (laughs) So, we don't have anything like cemented, put together. Those cruises, those tours we put together, what makes them so fun is, well, I'll just be blown. We don't really do anything about it. We just get asked to promote them and say, look, we're going to be there. It's a cool thing. You should come do it. We can hang out and we'll all get to do this cool thing together. That's kind of the capacity that we tend to do this. And so those get put together by other folks. And then we kind of vet through the opportunities and go, this one makes sense. But I would imagine, kind of feel like at some point, some night, there's going to be something. Mm -hmm. It might be something casual. It might just be a, hey, if you want to meet up, we're going to be here. I'm going to have an open bar bill. Yeah. Bar tab. From eight o'clock to eight o five, depends on how many people show up. I can't. I'm not made of money, so it'll either be something organized, or it'll just be like a casual drop in. Everybody can sit and chat because we've done those before, and they're always a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. People just kind of show up, and you get to chat, and it's a good time. Yeah, but we'll definitely be there. Yeah, and we'll let everybody know what's going on early as it gets closer. Yeah, we'll promote it. That's kind of what it is. Okay, next question. We have a couple left. How do you maintain identity control standards, et cetera, when opening a second office location? And this came from M. Maloney 13. This is actually a really good question. It's actually a really hard question. And I'm going to take the position that I'm not going to say this is the right way to do it because I'm not sure that there is one right way to do it. But I will tell you, so where I work, we have four offices. We have a Dallas office, Fort Worth, Austin, and Denver. And each one of those offices has its own personality to it. So the Dallas office where I'm at, it's the biggest. We're probably 70-something percent of everything is in Dallas. And what's interesting is the other offices, none of them opened because some owner or partner splintered off and wanted to live somewhere else. And so we decided an open office there. That's not how any of the offices came to be. Currently, we have, of the four offices, all the owners and like 60% of the principals are in Dallas. The Fort Worth office and the Austin office are each run by one of the other principals. And they're like a dozen plus people. They're not huge offices. Mm -hmm. And they kind of get to do what they need to do to be who they are because Fort Worth has its own culture to it. Part of the reason it's not Dallas is because it's not Dallas. I don't know that we want it to be like the Dallas office, quite honestly, or what would be the point of having it to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Austin. Austin's got its own vibe. If we tried to mandate or dictate, you need to operate the way we do, they'd all throw their hacky sacks at us in <laughs> disgust. And <laughs> you know, it just it doesn't work the same. Now, from a drawing standpoint, a control and standards, separate office, that's just an office issue. Mm -hmm. Like we have that in our own office. We have project architects that think the way they do, it's the best way to do it. And we get little splinter solutions. Like this is how that guy does it. This is how that woman does it. This is how that person does it. There's always some room for some individuality Mm -hmm. in the process, quite honestly. Interesting. It's a challenge. There's things about it that we don't love, but we have not been successful in 
setting up something so rigid that people don't deviate. Like we just, that's not our culture, I guess. So I'm a terrible person to answer this question because we don't. That's a short, <laughs> we don't. That's interesting. I mean, I feel like the standard things would be a hard and fast rule to keep some of that identity in it. To me, that's identity of your you know, main office brand. No, but what standards? I'm like drawing standards and stuff like that. Just the basic stuff. I mean, in Revit, though, I mean, the way that people build cabinets is different. The two people sitting next to each oh, other God. have different ways that they oh, do it. That would kill me. That's not how it worked for me. Ooh. Everybody built it all the same way. Everything was the same way. We don't have that bandwidth. We have people that look at stuff and like, even the way they set up their drawings. I mean, it's, oh, it's, a, it's a dog fight oh, wow. all the time. That's crazy. Yeah. I will say the some people that I've known that have worked in other offices, from my experience of just hearing people, that it's kind of like what you said in a way that a lot of times in the satellite offices, it's the principal person there or whatever who kind of sets the tone. Yeah, yeah. To a large extent. So the offices all function and their cultures are all different. But just because, A, they're in a different city, like you said, but then also there's a different person in charge. Yeah. Even though it's further up, the same people are in charge, but at that location, it's the principal or whoever's running that office. And so manage to make the culture that they want in that place at that time. And I think most companies, big companies expect that. And I mean, that's how it works. Well, look, just so I don't get in trouble with my own brass, I'm not saying that it's wild west and standards and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm saying 85%. I'm making up that number. Like the vast majority of it, it's the same yeah. because that's just how we do it. And the truth is the Dallas office is the support to all these other offices. Like they might get a big project and they're like, mm -hmm. we can't do this all by ourselves. Yeah. So we chip in. So that kind of technical baggage knowledge and setup and how do we do it? They might have a PA or a PM out of the Dallas office working on projects that are in Austin. Mm. So the way that they do it is how they're doing it in Austin. Yeah. It's just that that's because that's how that guy does it. Yeah. And the percentage differences between person one, two, three, and four might be just a couple degrees, but they're not exactly the same. That was the only real point I was trying to make. Gotcha. There's nothing so rigid that it doesn't allow for people to deviate in a way that they think makes sense. Mm. And that's true for the entire office. Like even the snacks that we keep in Dallas are different from the snacks <laughs> they have down in Austin. I mean, it's... Well, of course. Yeah. Of course. So the answer to the question is we don't. We don't try. There's a reason why we have these different offices, and part of it's because we need them to be of where they're at. They, they need to have the personality of the, where they're situated. Yeah, I don't know where the question is coming from, but in a way, it, that's a hard thing to even try to control. Yeah. Okay. This is the specific Andrew question. I can't talk about this one at all. Uh. And it's the, this comes from Archimoy, so A-R-C-H-I underscore MOI. And their question is, what are the pros and cons of IPAL programs in architecture school? And you should start by saying what IPAL stands for. <laughs> for people who don't know what this means. What does it stand for? Integrated path to licensure is what I think it is, but I don't know what the A is. But the IPAL programs are essentially set up so that upon graduating with your professional degree, you are either fully licensed or able to take the exams very quickly thereafter. And I can tell you that in my recent studies and investigations in this, there are a vast array of conditions for these. None of these IPAL programs are the same in the way that they work. Now, whether that's a pro or a con, I don't know. They work differently and they're set up differently. I was looking at one the other day that it was a five-year program, but it took seven years because they had off every other semester. Oh, interesting. To do work, to go on internships. So I think it was the first two years, it was kind of all classes. And then after that, it was every other semester was school, work, school, work, school, work, school, work. So it took a little bit longer, but that was how they were getting the hours. Our program is essentially a six-year program. And so you work in the summers and then there's a couple of semesters, or at least one I know where you're working full time. So the pros of that are your knowledge is going to be hopefully increased quicker. Because I find that students that have worked at any capacity always come back from that experience with newfound, maybe confidence. I don't know if that's the right word. Confidence, at least in themselves and their abilities. And so they tend to make decisions faster and their projects progress faster. And I think that's a result of being in the workforce. So I think that that is a good thing. Part of it, for my opinion, would be the ability to, to take all the exams when it's fresh in your mind. Yeah. 
you're already studying and you're used to it and that's your life. And so doing that is really, I think, a bonus of that instead of waiting for five, seven years and you haven't studied anything in, in all that time. And so now you're having to kind of get back into student mode. Sometimes that can be difficult. The only thing I would say that I could really harp on as a con, and I'm not going to harp on it, but would be that the fact that you don't, you don't get to study abroad typically. I think in most of these programs, that experience that I think is one that many architecture schools put forward and want people to do, right? it doesn't happen because you're spending that time getting work experience. So all of your free time, so to speak, is filled with work. And so if that study abroad experience is really important to you, then maybe the iPal thing isn't for you. Or maybe you find and research the programs where you can make it happen and still manage to do it, but it may take a little bit longer than what the program has initiated, set out for. I guess the other drawback is you have to be all in from the beginning. There's not a lot of, oh, well, let me figure it out if I want to do it or I don't want to do it. Because if you hem-haw around too much, then you're going to be behind or you're going to be so far in that you can't get out or getting out is going to be more problematic. I think those are really the things. We talk to our freshman students who are like, do you know for certain that this is what you, you want to be an architect? Because we have a four-year degree, and so a lot of kids that come in our program, they don't necessarily want to be architects. They want to be designers to do something else. They want an art-type degree, and this is the closest thing that we kind of offer currently. Yeah. And so I think that's it. Make sure to know that's what you want to do. Okay. Solid answer. Okay. We took on some big questions in this show, I think. Mm-hmm. And we still have to get to this episode's What's the Rank? Yes. Because I still have a handful of what's the rank topics that came from that afternoon of lucidity about two months ago. (laughs) And this what's the rank technically has 26 possible choices. But let's be honest, there are only three correct answers. It's just whether or not you're going to get them in the right order. You ready for this? Okay. Yeah, sure. I basically said if you don't choose my three letters, then you're wrong. I noticed that. I know. I noticed that. My three letters are great. Okay. It was, number three was easy, number one was the easy. Uh-huh. Number two, I had to think about. Uh, all right. You got to talk about what we're ranking now that you've given it away. Yes. So today we're going to rank the best three letters of the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? And there's going to be some letters that are going to feel like, again, like I'm disrespected again. Mm. Yes. Yeah, for sure. All right. I have a feeling we're not going to have the same answers for this at all. Well, you never know. We didn't know that we'd have all the same one on the beard. Yeah, I know, but I'm pretty sure if mine are going to be not the right three answers. Okay, that's fine. Now, I will tell you that I had one criteria mm-hmm. for making my selection. Okay. Just one. Had nothing to do with, well, I need to choose a vowel because it's an important letter, and I use this letter more than any other letters. That was not my criteria. Mm-hmm. My criteria was, what letter do I like to write? <laughs> that was it. <laughs> You know what? That's my criteria also. Yeah. Which ones do I get the most enjoyment of writing? Yeah. Yeah. These are the letters I like writing. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's get to it. Number three for you. We can get to these pretty quick, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. It's A. (laughs) Oh, A. Wow. There you go. Shocking. This is my first name, but yes. I think when we talk about it being fun to write, to me, there's a certain reason that these are fun to write, and that's like three really strong strokes. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but it's always just three really strong marks. If you're printing it, that is. Yes, of course. And if you're doing a capital letter. Yes, of course. But that's how I write. I only print and I only print everything in capital letters. So. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. We are architects. That's kind of how we roll. Yeah. All right. Okay. My number three is letter B. (laughs) (laughs) Which Technically, is not my first name. My first name is not Bob. It's Robert. Not technically, but you write the B more than you write the R. I'm almost certain. I sign my name Robert. I don't sign it Bob. So. Okay. I think there are 785 blog posts posts. that say different, but okay. You know what? You ought to look at our blog posts more often (laughs) because it's not. I sign it Robert on our blog post. Yes. Is it Robert? Come on. Yes. Uh, look it up right. You can look it up right I'm now. I'm going to look at it right now. Yeah. And I'm. you know what? We're going to make everybody wait while you do it. Because it won't take long. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Oh, well, it is an R. Yeah, you don't sign it Robert. Oh, snap. It's just an R. Yes. You're right. But there's a B there, too. That's fine. 
Yes. I do write the B a lot. Yes. I kind of have a way that I like writing it, and it's fun. I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So it's number three. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Here comes shock number two. (laughs) Is it an H or a G? It is an H. It is an H. Because it's three strong strokes again. Exactly. I love it. I love it. They're the most fun for me to write. Oh, my God. You know what? But Hey, I can tell you what. It's not a G. I got curse words for G is a terrible letter. G is a terrible letter. But G is the worst. G is the worst. I, no, that's not my first choice at all. G's are terrible. G's are the worst. I think only J's are worse than G's possibly. Maybe. J's are not fun to write either. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, I actually, my number two is the letter R. <laughs> and somehow I get made fun of a lot for how I write R's because it looks like they go, people call them marching R's. I was like, it looks like a P with its arms out. Yeah. So what's funny is people have seen my signatures when I sign my name and they'll write a letter. I've gotten mail addressed to Pobeft instead of Robert. <laughs> P-O-B-E-F-T. Pobeft. Nice. <laughs> That's great. Like, yeah, they got that from my signature. That's yeah. funny. That's funny. Marching R. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know what? It's fun to write. I still like writing it. Mm-hmm. And people are like, that's not how the leg of the R is not supposed to be pointing up. <laughs> But somehow... 90 degrees, yeah. I've created my own letter of the alphabet, and it is my R. And I'm going to stand by it. kind of surprised I didn't make it number one, because that's how unique it is. This is true. This is true. Yes. All right. Number one. Let's go. And now, if these are the same, I'm going to flip. But my number one letter is Z. You and the three strokes, man. That one's got four. Oh, you put the... I put the little thing in the the center. Yeah, that's why I like it because it's a little bit, a little bit funky. That's a thumbs down for me. Oh God, you kill him! Shut up. Really? So, so, so. Mm. so is your stupid R? Uh uh-uh. uh I got no extra moves in my R. Uh. I just got like one really cool move. <laughs> You're like making up moves. I'm not making it up. That's a normal move. That is a standard move. That's not a normal. Yes, it is. You know what? I bet if we looked at a hundred people who wrote the letter z less than five and i'm being generous with five would ever put that little bar in there okay so if we looked at a hundred people who wrote their r none of them but one would have your marching r like you so ha- i got all the same parts though it's the same parts i just changed the angle oh you're adding a stroke no. you're making up a stroke <laughs> it exists yes but it died in the elizabethan era <sighs> All right. Hey, look, you know what? People will support you. They will rally to you in the comment section. <laughs> I encourage people to do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So you're number one. It, this is the obvious answer to me. It's so obvious because it's the letter O. O. Yeah. O is a good. It's a geometric shape. It's boring. That's the strongest. It's boring. It's the number one geometric shape on the planet. Unless you're doing a plan. Unless you're doing a plan. It's yes. the worst. <laughs> it's the, the worst. Actually, the second worst. Triangles are worse. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. Bore. Your letters are bore. No, it's bro. <laughs> B-R-O. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Bro. Uh, you don't think there's some symmetry? I mean, like, it uh, all kind of came on. together. Uh, yeah, it was too simple. At least I got one that wasn't in my name. So. I can't help it that, I mean, out of all the vowels, it was a pretty strong valve. Mm. You know, I'll tell you. Sure. B-R-O. Mm. Bro. Best three letters of the alphabet. <laughs> I should have flipped mine and I could have been H-A-Z. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've reached a point where we should probably wrap it up. Mm-hmm. So thank you for being with us today for episode 120, Ask the Show 2023 Spring Edition. Special thanks to today's sponsor, Construction Specialties. They are so focused on the importance of mastering movement that they have created CEUs specifically on mastering the movement of sun and light as well as architectural louvers. Each course is worth one AIA-LU-HSW, the gold standard, and it's part of the Mastering Movement Academy by CS. Visit masteringmovement.net to take this and other courses. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can be alerted every two weeks when we publish a phenomenal new episode. While you're there, 
please take a few moments and leave us a five-star. Come find us in San Francisco at the AIA Convention Rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this illuminating episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.